0: Have you guys ever seen any of those commercials or or anything for those online dating services? I mean, they're everywhere. They're so I could not, I could not even fit them all on the screen. There's Christian Mingle. they've got Christian versions of these things. Zoosk is the most popular, they say. There's match.com, eHarmony. I love this one right here. Chemistry, we've got the formula. Whoa, I need that. There's even one called Be Naughty, and that boasts no strings attached. Just sign up to hook up, you know? It's like, wow. Or if you really want that, you could just go to Craigslist. I think Craigslist <laughs> is there. So there's so many different ones. Here's my favorite one it's called Me Harmony. This is a sketch done by Saturday Night Live. So I don't don't really have anything negative to say really about the online dating scene. I can't judge or comment because I have lots of friends who've gotten married um, from someone they met on a dating scene. And when I was single and free to mingle, um, there wasn't a lot of those things. They didn't exist. They didn't exist really. And the ones that did exist, we kind of frowned upon. So I I don't know how my life would be different if I lived in an era where all this was at my disposal. So I'm not commenting or judging on the online dating scene. But what I am interested in, is that all of these things seem to have one thing in common, and that is this particular modern and postmodern view of love and marriage, specifically that they can match you up with the perfect, the perfect spouse, the perfect match. Just like chemistry says, we have the formula. <laughs> we, we, know, we know how to get you with the perfect spouse. And this is really the modern view of love and marriage today, that there really is someone out there who's perfect for you. When I was in college, we called that the one, right? So we would say, oh, uh, he, he, I would hear girls say, well, he's not the one, or maybe he's the one. And we wanted this one person who was gonna complete us, make us perfect and make us happy. You know, it's been many years since then. I'm wondering, have you guys married the one? <laughs> you know, now that it's all over, have you married the one? Here's an interesting thing about the one, if you think about it. The concept of this one perfect person is kind of ridiculous, actually, because what happens if you marry the wrong one? Think about this for a second. If you marry the wrong one, then first of all, you're going to be completely miserable, right? Because you've married the wrong one. But not only that, but now someone else is going to be completely miserable because you've not married them, and now you've married someone else's one, and then if your one finally gets tired of waiting for you and marry someone else, they've married the wrong one, and they've also married someone else's wrong one. Are you get what I'm saying here? So eventually what happens is everyone's end up married to the wrong person, and the dominoes are all falling, and it's all your fault for choosing the wrong one. And then what happens is we get, we get into this relationship, and we find that we're not happy because we didn't marry the one. And the only thing that can really draw you to the one is this magical thing called love, and if it pulls the two of you together, you guys can elope to the Eiffel Tower on New Year's Eve and live happily ever after. The modern and postmodern view of marriage is that we have to marry the perfect person who completes me and who makes me the happiest. And the unfortunate thing about that is it just isn't true. In fact, it's, it's very destructive. Here, here's My goal tonight is to, is to convince you that you've married the wrong person. For some of you, that's going to be easy. <laughs> some of you already know that. Some of you, I think I'll convince you by the end of the night. But before we jump into that, I want to do a discussion question. Just right off the bat, um, we, 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 one of our values here at Missio Day is community. So we have these tables so that we can build community. You don't have to talk. If you feel insecure about talking out loud, I'm, you know, I understand. I don't, I don't like to talk either. But, but uh, so there's some people who like to talk, so I'll just let them talk. So here's the question. Why did you marry your spouse? And what attracted you to him or her? What led you to think that they were the one for you? And if you're single, because I know we've got lots of single people here, and you should be proud to be single. If you're single, what are you looking for? And what are you looking for in a spouse? Because I'm sure you've got a list. Um, I, I used to have a long list. Like, like she used to have to have, she, one of the things on my list when I was single was that she had to have twins in her family because I wanted to have twins, and it wasn't until I was about 28 that I realized that it, that doesn't even matter, they have to be in my family. So I scratched that one off my list. Oh, anyway, this us talk, three minutes. Okay, so here's, so here's the deal. Um, you probably married the wrong person, and, and here is what an ethics professor of Duke University says. His name's Howas, or I'll be quoting him a lot tonight. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce his name really, Howers. Um, The assumption, he says, is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find that right person. And this moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, comma, being the enormous thing that it is, comma, means we are not the same person after we've entered into it. The primary problem, then, is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married to, because we always marry a stranger, really. And Keller adds to that, he says, many people have bristled at Howers' statement And that is to be expected, right? He just said you married the wrong person. (laughs) You should bristle. Because he's intentionally looking for a head-on collision with the spirit of this age. So what does Keller mean by that? The spirit of this age is the thing I was telling you about before. That the modern and the postmodern view of marriage is that there is someone out there who completes you. See also Jerry Maguire. (laughs) There is someone out there who will make you happy. That marriage was designed for you to be with the right one. And that, that is so common. That is, you matter of fact, we don't even really have to think or talk like that because we naturally subconsciously think like that because it's been burned into our subconscious brain by TV, by movies, by love songs. All of your favorite love stories have this at the root, that there's this one perfect person that if you're not with them, you can't be happy and you can't live without them. This is, this is the one. And he says, this is the spirit of the age. It's the, it's the majority view. There's one person out there, and you probably didn't marry that person. And, 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 and Howe says this, this is wrong, and it's destructive. This is a destructive view. And here's why it's destructive. You probably already know, but let me just tell you. Because there's a lot of people in this country who are married and unhappy, and they're unhappy, and so they naturally, well, first of all, they thought that marriage was designed to make them happy. And second of all, they begin to think, maybe I didn't marry the right person. And so now other people start to look like, maybe they will make me happy. Maybe he'll laugh at my jokes. And so this is very dangerous because it overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. And here's, here's where, where the thesis of tonight's <laughs> les- message will be. What is the crucial aspect of marriage? Simply that. We always marry the wrong person. And Keller, in, in this book the, entitled The Meaning of Marriage, the one that I gave away um, last weekend and will continue to quote during this series, he, he calls this Howresser's Law. This is the law, the law that we all marry the wrong person. And he says, and if this is the law, then the reverse of the law is also true. Namely, that you also always marry the right person. Because The point of the law suggests the inadequacy of the current assumption that success or failure of a marriage can be determined by marrying the right person. If you've married the right person, well, there's still no guarantee that he or she will remain the right person, for people have a disturbing tendency to change. So you married the wrong person, or you married the right person, it doesn't matter. You get into this thing called marriage, and you won't know who they are. They're different, they've changed. The person you married is not the person you're now married to. (laughs) Or as one um, scholar said it, my wife has been married to six different men. All of them have been me. (laughs) (coughs) So tonight, the thesis of this message is that you've married the wrong person. And the point of that message is to say that it doesn't really necessarily matter whether you married the wrong person or the right person. There's still no guarantee that he or she will, marrying the right or marrying the wrong person, will give you a successful or an unsuccessful marriage. Does that make sense? Choosing the right spouse doesn't guarantee that you'll have a successful marriage. Choosing the wrong spouse doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll have an unsuccessful marriage. That's not the point of marriage. So here's what we're gonna do tonight. First, I wanna look at the biblical view of marriage. What does the Bible say about marriage? Or another way of saying it is, what was the original purpose and the original design of marriage? Then I want to look at what culture says about marriage. Or, another way of saying it, how has our modern society twisted and transformed the original design of marriage? Does that make sense? So biblical, cultural, purposeful, new, twisted, adulterated, no pun intended, purpose of marriage. Does that make sense? But I feel like this is going to be a big task. So let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for the worship that we were engaged in, that we were able to gather in this place and worship your name. I pray, Lord, that you will come into this place. That your spirit will fill this place. That as we sing and as we speak about you and as we speak about the spouse that you gave us and as we speak about marriage, that you will begin to change our hearts and change our lives. That we would (coughs) sense your presence and know that you are near and know that you are here and know that ultimately you love us and have a purpose for our marriage. And I pray, Lord, that we will learn that and see that tonight so that we would love our spouses as Christ loves his bride, the church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if we're gonna start with the biblical view of marriage, we probably should start with, with the Bible, right? So let me, let me read the Bible. Um, we're gonna go to Genesis chapter two. This is the beginning of the story of the Bible. In the very beginning of the Bible, it opens with a wedding, The first wedding, you may say. Now, normally, I preach exegetically through a whole book of the Bible, but during this series, we're just going to focus on Ephesians and on a few other marriage passages in Scripture. Tonight, I'm just going to focus the whole message on, on that one sentence. Or is that two? No, that's one. One sentence. And this is very famous, very popular. You've probably heard this before. It's the beginning of marriage. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So there's several things I want to unpack. The first is, it's always noted that this is the first thing that God says, it's not good. God's been creating the universe. He created the heavens. He created the birds. He created the fish. He created trees. He created everything. And everything he created, afterwards, he said, it is good. He gave a benediction, a good word. But there was one thing that he said was not good, or a malediction, and that is, it's not good For this man to be alone. Incidentally, God actually says, this is good seven times. Seven times. It is good. 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 So, and if you know anything about the Bible, seven is the number of completion or the number of perfection. So essentially, the author of Genesis is telling us that God created the perfect universe, the perfect world, the perfect garden. It's it is good seven times. It's paradise. That's the definition of paradise, right? Perfect Shangri-La. Huh. Except there's one thing that's not so perfect. You might be thinking, okay, so which one is it? Is it perfect or is it not so perfect? <laughs> because you can't have perfect and not so perfect at the same time. Are you asking that question? You should be. You should be. The author wants you to be asking that question. How can this perfect place produce in God a saying that says, this is not good? Let I me mean, think about it. Sin had not entered the world yet. This is God's perfect creation. Adam is alone in a paradise. Seemingly, he has a perfect relationship with God, right? He's walking in the garden with, with God. So how could it be that the perfect garden and this perfect relationship between Adam and God all of a sudden is not good? I mean, isn't the relationship between Adam and God enough? Well, obviously the answer is no, because God says this is not good. Why would it not be good? Why wouldn't God just say, I want you all to myself? I want you to be here to worship me. Well, primarily because God created us, human beings, in his own image. In his image, he created us, as the Bible says. And God is three persons, three distinct persons in one Godhead. So he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's three distinct different beings, persons, I have to say, persons in one complete unified Godhead. And if that's the case, if we're created in that image, then we're created to be in relationship. We're created to be in lots of relationships, not just a relationship with God, but in a relationship with someone horizontally as well. So God created us to be in relationships, and he noted quickly, it's not good for this one to be alone. So what's the solution? The solution is, let's create another. Let's create a companion that he can be in a relationship with, and the two of them can be in a relationship with me, God. That's a So we got a little triunity going on right there. It's pretty cool. I could really go on on, and on and on about that, but not today. So the next thing is that he's gonna make a helper fit for him. And oh man, this verse right here has started wars. So I'm gonna have to retool it a bit. Really, we all need to be retooled a bit on this. What does the word helper mean? Incidentally, when I proposed to my wife, it was a week after I'd learned this, and um, I couldn't wait to share it with her. So I took her to a little coffee shop and shared it with her, Shared what I'm about to share with you. And then, oh man, the cat was in the bag after that, and then I, and then I just got to ask her to marry me, and she said, yes, it's a beautiful story. So let me tell you, let me tell you what, what, what I learned. That the word helper does not mean that the woman was made to help out around the house, to raise the kids, and to make the man the best man that he could be. That's not what the word helper means. Unfortunately, that's typically the way it's been assumed in centuries past. But what the word helper literally means, well, it's a military term. In Hebrew, the word is chazer, and it's a, it's a military term. It's, it's used um, to describe a king who's going to help a smaller king who needs help. So, so you've got this king of Israel who's going up against Babylon, and he can't take Babylon by himself, so he goes and asks Assyria, will you help me? Will you align with me, or else I'm going to get squished? Will you be my helper? And the Assyrian king says, I'll help you. God uses this word to describe himself. God is our helper. He's our ever-present help in a time of need. He's also the helper to Israel. He would, In the military sense, he would say, look, if it wasn't for me, you guys would have gotten squashed. I went up on that hillside before you even got there and confused them and they killed each other. <laughs> I was your helper. Sometimes this word is used and it's translated in Hebrew as savior. Hezar is sometimes translated as savior. Sometimes it's translated as strength. Like in the Proverbs, it says, he is my strength and my shield. So really, the way we should translate this word is probably not even use the word helper at all because it just messes us all up. We probably should say, I will create a strength for him. I will create a savior for him. In fact, one scholar says, I would not be surprised if future translations of the Bible start doing that because we still have this, he calls it, a fossilized translation of this text. Like we we don't wanna move away from the helper submissive thing. And And this happened to me in Hebrew class. We had to translate all of Genesis from Hebrew to English. And she gave us this particular project to um, translate this verse, and then she gave us the page numbers of particular commentaries that she wanted us to quote. And like a bad student that I was, I got the Cliff Note version. And just honestly speaking, for most of my life, I could just kind of like say stuff and get an A. You know, I wouldn't even really know what I was talking about, but I could make it sound like I did. And and then in this particular class. She gave us the page number. So, see, I couldn't just like fluff it. I had to actually go to the library, (laughs) find the book, open it up, go there. (coughs) So, what I did was I fluffed it. It was late night. I just did it, did the, got an F, big, big, big fat F. She goes, I would have given you a better grade because you said a lot of good things in your paper, but you didn't do what I asked you to do. I asked you to go look this up and then come back and tell me what it says. I said, no, 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 I did look it up. She's like, well, the funny thing is then that you looked it up and you still refuse to believe what you read. <laughs> because what I said was that the helper means that she's the submissive wife to take care of the husband's needs. And this is biblical. <laughs> Good job, huh? <laughs> and my Hebrew teacher was a female. So she said, back to the library, come back, came back, got an A I learned, whoa, this literally means that she... Guys, what does it imply when God uses for the woman this word, which means a king who helps another king who's about to get squashed, or God who saves us, or a savior, or a strength? What does that say about our wives? What does that say about women? They're not some helper. The fact that we need a helper means that we need help. (laughs) The fact that we need a savior means we need salvation. And the women are laughing, and the men are like, it's true. We know it's true. I need some help. The second thing is this word fit. Again, another word that could be translated so many ways, right? A helper who's fit. Who doesn't want that? That was a joke, Dave. Thanks for laughing. (laughs) Okay. Your Bible may say suitable. A helper who's suitable for him. The the Hebrew word is konego, which is an interesting word. It literally could be translated. There's two words conjunctionized there, if if that makes sense to you. It actually means or translates as like opposite. So I'm going to make a helper who's like opposite. What does like opposite mean? Some of you know exactly what it means, right? (laughs) This helper or this strength is equal to us, like us, but also opposite us. Keller in his book uses the illustration of a puzzle piece. Two like puzzle pieces don't work, right? Two puzzle pieces that have like, say two circles on the end won't connect. And two puzzle pieces that are just different and opposite won't work either, like if it's a circle and a square hole, you know, that wouldn't work. It has to be like opposite. It has to be a circle and a circle or hole, you know? Another way of saying it is our hands. Our hands are connect Our hands are like opposite. They're not opposite, right? They're 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 mirrored image. They're perfect like opposite. I have my both of my hands are perfectly connected, though. They're like opposite. And they're made that way to function correctly. If my hands were the same, that would be hard to get things done, you know? But they're like opposite. God makes for us a strength, a savior who is like opposite. Okay, now that we've unpacked this very famous passage, let's just review. And that's, what does it mean? God created a helper for us? Or, more specifically, a strength, a savior? Who is like opposite of us? Because it was not good for us to be alone. So what does all this mean? It means it's not good for you to be alone. (laughs) Because you need a like opposite. You need a relationship. What happens when you're in a relationship? Conflict relationships always bring about conflict. In fact, if I could borrow Keller's joke, he says, "Remember, it's a military term. <laughs> this is conflict. This is headbutting." And the, so, the purpose of marriage is to be in a relationship with someone who's like, perfectly like opposite of you in order to headbutt you and change you. We have a strength a strong helper who's the opposite of you so that now you don't just get to argue with yourself and fight with yourself. Because when you're alone and you argue and fight with yourself, who always wins? Yourself. And that's not good. But whenever you've got a like opposite, guess what? You don't get to win anymore. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) You're most of the time not going to win. And you're going to learn real quickly that all your ideas are not as great as you think they are and all your jokes are not as funny as you think they are, and that's what my strength and my helpmate is often teaching me. All of your ideas are not really all that great, and that is not funny. (laughs) Don't say that again. It means that the purpose of marriage, the intention by design, God says, I'm going to put in your life a relationship who's like opposite of you in order to rub you and to bang on you and to butt your head so that you become different, so that you become changed, the purpose of marriage is to change us. And when you're alone, there's no, little change. So Here's the question. How is your wife, your spouse, excuse me, like opposite of you? And how has that been a help to you? Ooh. Okay, so now that we've looked at the biblical original design of marriage, the pure 100% unadulterated purpose of marriage, that the man does not need to be alone, He needs a suitable, a a perfect-like opposite strength in his life. Now let's look at how that's been twisted. So Keller talks about today's culture and the way we view marriage, and he calls it the me-marriage. He actually spends a whole chapter in that book kind of documenting the history of marriage over the past few centuries and, and how it's changed, and it has changed drastically from the way we used to think about marriage way back in the day to the way we think about marriage and love today. Uh, And he quotes this um, uh, New York Times columnist, and it says this. Recently, New York Times columnist Tara Parker Pope wrote an article entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. The notion, listen listen to this, this is going to blow your mind, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. It does, (laughs) right? After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Well, not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting who help each each of them attain their valued goals. And this change has been revolutionary. And Keller adds, and Parker Pope lays it out unashamedly. This is the way it is now. Marriage used to be a public institution for the common good, and now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. And, And when I do marriage counseling, I, I've learned that the thing that the, the thing that you I need to do most for that couple is to is to help them s- start talking with a we instead of a me. Because they're always saying, well, I didn't get this, or she she said this, or I said this, and she didn't, say, and it's always me, 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 or her her, 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 or him, 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 him. And I'm saying, no, no, it's never me, and it's never thee. It's we. We feel this way. We are moving in this way. But he's saying that. By and large, the way culture has changed today is it is unashamedly a me marriage. So here's what people want today. People want the one. People want the perfect spouse. People want that person who's going to complete them and make them happy. Marriage was designed to make them happy. And so what they want is someone who's funny and smart and stimulating, and sexy, and charming, and healthy, and and ambitious, and none of those things are in themselves bad. I mean, I'm all of those things. But (laughs) the trick is, you want those things, and you want that person not to need anything from you, and not to want to change you in any way. So essentially, what we'll say is, I want someone who loves me for me, and who doesn't try to change me. And Keller goes on to say, if you're looking for a marriage like that, then you're also looking for a spouse who's almost completely pulled together, someone very low-maintenance, without much in the way of personal problems, and you're looking for someone who will not require or demand significant change. So to conduct a me-marriage requires two completely well-adjusted, happy individuals with very little in the way of emotional neediness of their own or character flaws that need a lot of work. The problem is... (coughs) There's almost no one like that out there to marry. So this new, and listen to this sentence, this new conception of marriage as the self-realization has put us in a position of wanting too much out of marriage and yet not nearly enough at the same time. And the reason why that's such a powerful, that last sentence is the new me marriage says, we want too much out of marriage. We want the perfect spouse or we're not gonna get married at all. We'll just live together until we figure out or find someone else who's better than you. They want too much out of marriage and yet at the same time not enough. And what they really should want, the, the, the not enough, is someone who will stick to you till death do you part. That's really what marriage is about. So the new me marriage wants all and yet not enough at the same time. So here's how this works you want someone who's going to complete you and make you happy. And if you marry that person, let's say you actually found that person. <laughs> Um, who, who has no character flaws and who is not needy and who is really just there to stroke you and your ego. It won't take you very long at all to realize that, well, they're not so pulled together. And they have a lot of character flaws. And you'll hate it when they tell you that you have character flaws too. And then what will eventually happen is the two of you will start to feel that each other is selfish and needy. You'll say, well, she always needs me to make her happy. And then she'll say, well, he always needs me to be you know, interested and laugh at his jokes. And then when you get into a situation like that, you'll never be happy. It's really, really difficult because you're really, really selfish. And so what you end up saying is, maybe this is the wrong one. Maybe I need someone else who's gonna be more complete for me. What happens is that we start to look at marriage as a consumer. And incidentally, you have been highly trained to be a great consumer. As an American, you are a walking consumer. All the time, without even thinking about it, you are valuing, judging the value of things based on the cost to benefit ratio. When I go to Taco Bell, I want to know what's the most amount of food I can get for the least amount of money. And we look at things saying, how much is this going to cost me? And what's the benefit going to be to me? And when we start looking at marriage like that, we start saying, how much do I have to put into this thing? And then when I, is, is, am I getting the same out of it? And if the cost-to-benefit ratio isn't good, then maybe I need to find a new one, another one, a better one, at least one that gives about as much as I put into it. And you know that there are people out there, not in here, there are people out there who think like that. We all think like that, amen? So, do you see the difference? Do you see the gap? Marriage was designed to change you. It was designed to purify you and to make you holy. But we've twisted it, contorted it, and made it to please me and to make me happy. And the funny thing is, is that God never designed marriage to make you happy, never. Never. God did not say it's not good for the man to be unhappy. He said it's not good for the man to be alone because he needs to be changed. He needs to be saved. He needs a strong helper in his life. Incidentally, and this is the irony of this new me marriage. Studies that have been carried out for a long period of time suggest by and large, by far, that those marriages that are unhappy, if they stick together together, and ride it out, they will really soon, like within five years, more than likely, end up into happy, healthy marriages. When we play the consumer game, and we say this is costing me too much, I'm gonna get out, then what happens is we get out of this marriage, and we get into another one, and we start with that another seven-year journey until we hit that itch, (laughs) and then we gotta find another one, and what, what basically happens is we never make it through the long haul, and the studies prove that if you get over that hump, you'll be happy. The two of you will come to this place where you're happy together. And so at first you were butting heads and rubbing each other hard, but now you've worked through this hump and you're happy. So ironically, marriage doesn't exist to make you happy, and the me marriage folks want it to make them happy, but the only way it will make them happy is if they fight through to the original design of it. I'm gonna stick this one out, I'm gonna let this person change me, I'm gonna love this person, I'm gonna love this stranger, until I begin to love this person as my my lover, as my friend. So what's the conclusion of all of that? You married the wrong person. Or you married the right person. Either which way, it doesn't matter. The point of Howard's Law is to show us that it doesn't necessarily matter who you marry. Now, let me back up real quick, because I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and just marry the next person that walks out onto your driveway, you know. First person who responds to you on Match.com. You know, you do need to have standards. Marriage is difficult. Don't make it any more difficult than it needs to be. But it doesn't necessarily matter who you're with, all right? Love the one you're with (laughs) because that's the one who's going to change you, and in the end, you'll be happy. So the point of Howard's Law is to get us away from the consumer mindset of marriage and back to the biblical gospel-like marriage. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you were here on Easter, if you were here on um, last week, we looked at Ephesians 5. And Paul basically quotes Genesis 2. And then he says, and this is what marriage is. Two will become one. And this is a huge, profound mystery. But I'm not talking about marriage, Paul says. I'm talking about Jesus. What? I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the gospel, Paul says. So what does that mean? It means God designed marriage from the beginning to teach us about Jesus. It means that God designed marriage from the beginning to teach us about the gospel. And the gospel is that God loves you. And you know you don't deserve that. The gospel is that God loves you so much that he would die, he would give His life. He would sacrifice a lot more than just happiness. He would give his life for you. And marriage is just like that. It teaches us this awesome, tr- what true love really looks like, and it really looks like ultimate sacrifice. I'll die for you. I'll die for you. Walk the die for you. Don't know the worst. <laughs> the Bible says this. This is love that Christ died while we were still sinners. This is love that Christ died for the stranger. Christ wasn't on the cross, dying for you, saying, oh, he's so cute, and I just love him. He's so lovely to me and attractive to me, so I will die for him. That's not the kind of love that Jesus has. The kind of love that Jesus has is, I'm dying in agony up here while you're spitting on me, mocking me, and abandoning me, and yet I'll say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus loves us not because we're Lovely, but because he wants to make us lovely. He wants to enter into our lives and change us. That's what the gospel is, that he saves us. Jesus is our ultimate helper. He's our ultimate like opposite who created us for his purpose to love us and change us. But we don't like to be changed. I want someone who loves me for me. But Jesus doesn't love you for you. (laughs) Jesus loves you for who you will become. That's the gospel. And that's what marriage is all about.